Ronaldo is ready. Strikes. After a long hiatus, Crossing Broad FC is back. We've got recaps of the Champions League final, some English championship promotions, some EPL news. As always, transfer rumors and notes, managers going here and there and everywhere, including the manager of the now three-peat Champions League champion, Real Madrid, Zinedine Zidane. Au revoir, mes amis. Uh, I'm Russ Joy at Joy on Broad, joined as always by Phil Kaidel. You can find him on Twitter at Phil Kaidel. That's K E I D E L. It's not that hard to spell. Uh, it's Phil Kaidel. Phil, Russ, how are you? I'm. You know what, Phil? I'm riding an emotional high. I know that we're you know beyond a week since the uh, Champions League final ended, but in a uh, a result that I I more or less called down to the uh, the final detail, Real Madrid once again get to lift. The most prestigious trophy in all of international football out of every Champions League. Everybody knows that the UEFA Champions League is the greatest. And once again, Real Madrid, three consecutive titles, four in five years. We don't have a manager, but that's okay. We don't need one. Oh, it's beautiful, Phil. As a threshold issue, I really hope you didn't spoil the Champions League final result for some of our listeners. I mean, we only took about nine days to get to the point where we're talking about this match. And some of them may still have it on DVR. Uh, maybe they were traveling abroad where they don't have internet connections or television of any kind. So uh, I apologize in advance uh, to those listeners of ours who don't know that Real Madrid beat Liverpool in this final, despite my prediction otherwise. <sighs> I felt so good watching that match. I uh, I think that the day that it happened, we uh, we had a crop share that we just signed up for. Uh, the most hippie thing that we've ever done as a married couple slash small family. And we had to go wander around as these people kind of told us about where we were going to pick our crops and like where all of our, our escarole was going to be growing. And that was at two o'clock. And all I kept thinking was, please get done that we can be back by 245. Of course, we didn't get back at 245. We got back much later. So I was kind of stuck between the rock and the hard place. I had all the group texts, all of the Facebook messages, people tweeting about, you know, what was going down between Real Madrid and Liverpool. And I had to make a very painful decision, which was to kind of fast forward through the better part of the first half of the match and stop uh, every so often if it looked like there was some big news. And of course, there was uh, the Mohamed Salah injury brought on by Sergio Ramos, which I think you and I probably have differing viewpoints on the legality of it, um, what the end result should have been in terms of uh, yellow or red. And ultimately, it changed the entire complexion of the match. Uh, let, let's get this out of the way. I'm obviously a Real Madrid fan. I felt like the Ramos challenge uh, in a lot of ways was reckless. I thought it ruined the match for the most part. It took a lot of the competitive balance that could have potentially existed and it threw it out the window. On one hand, uh, in a cynic's viewpoint, I think any time you can take out the best player on the other team, you would hope to do so legally and in a way that's not going to further jeopardize the guy's career. But, um, you know, it, it's a it's a moment where... Uh, If you look at the reverse angle, it looked like Salah had first initiated contact, began to wrap up Ramos's arm. Ramos retaliates with a much harder grasp and a much harder tug away from uh, Salah's body, which took him to ground. And of course, Salah rolled up, landed on it. What was it? The left shoulder, separated shoulder out for the rest of the match. How did you see that play? How did I see that play? Well, first of all, you're suggesting that there's any question as to whether or not this play changed the outcome of this match. If you watched it, which I know you did, I know I watched it, there were basically two different courses of play in this match. The Liverpool side that had Salah out there that carried the play for the first 20 to 25 minutes that looked the more threatening side that had Real Madrid on the back foot. And then the scared, concerned where are we going to go now that Salah's not playing Liverpool side that played the last 65 minutes and weren't any good. So yes, this play ruined the match. For me, it was minimally a yellow card. We can talk about Salah initiating contact, but he's a much smaller man, obviously. He's an attacker. Usually they get the benefit of the doubt in those situations. Uh, Ramos, again, not somebody without a history of this sort of thing. A dirty player. I'm not going to 
hedge my words on that. A guy who has a history of doing this sort of violence in the middle of the pitch and how this official didn't at least book Ramos for this takedown. And it was a really WWE or even UFC armbar takedown that Ramos put on Salah in the middle of the pitch that the referee had a fine look at. How he doesn't even at least show a yellow card, I'll never understand. It's funny they mentioned UFC I, and the WWE. I, I was actually going to pen that that takedown, the uh, the Ramos-Rousey armbar. Uh, yeah, it, it, I thought it was a shame. And the the thing that I th- I thought was a little bit surprising in that tackle and the, the end result was I fully expected that the way that Salah's shoulder was kind of being bent back, I thought they would hit the ground and, and that would be the shoulder that would separate or something would end up torn in that shoulder. But, you know, in a weird kind of twist of fate, him landing on that shoulder like he did, the opposite shoulder and subsequently separating it, I think nine out of ten times, the way that his momentum's going to take him and the way that his body's going to go down, that's not going to be how he lands. I would have expected him to land maybe face first. And so, you know, again, it, it kind of ruined the competitive balance of the match. And Liverpool, I thought, did a great job of keeping it competitive. And you're, you know, a couple moronic blunders away by your by your keeper away from this being a legitimate matchup without your best and most dynamic player. So I, I guess let's talk about... Uh, the man behind or between the sticks in uh, Carius, that was it was some of the worst goalkeeping I think we've seen. I, th- I thought in some ways he made some excellent saves that kept his team in the match, but ultimately two just costly blunders. One uh, on a beyond moronic rolling of the ball out at the top of the 18 with Benzema less than two or three feet away. That was that was costly blunder number one that I've only ever seen in like a bad matchup of FIFA online where somebody gets a little bit too cocky. And the other, of course, being a ripped shot where he looked like he got caught between wanting to, to catch it and, and try to parry it, and it did not work. Obviously, it ended up in the back of the net. Um, is there any way that Carrius can survive this for Liverpool or to even stay in the EPL or a top league going into next season? The knee-jerk reaction was no. Uh, there's still a possibility that he could be Liverpool's backup if they get an excellent first-choice keeper, and then you just putting him in a situation where he's only keeping for Liverpool in FA Cup matches early on, League Cup matches early on. He never sees the pitch in a match that matters, and you just hang on him for a while and then hope you can sell him down the line. But true enough, the stink of this performance by Loris Karius will never leave him, not at any point in his career. And I did a little bit of research. He's making 50,000 pounds a week for Liverpool at this point. It's hard to feel too bad for him. He's playing a child's game for a very much grown man's riches. But unfortunately for Carius, he was the classic athlete who was promoted two or three levels beyond his capabilities, beyond his station. He was not a Champions League final goalkeeper. I cringe to say this out loud, but the truth is, if Liverpool had Buffon playing for them in this match, they might still be playing. Oh, uh, oh. Carius was as bad as you've ever seen anybody be in a big spot, bigger than he was ready for. And look, Salah goes out, and now everybody's level has to rise one or two ticks to keep Liverpool in the match. And Carius actually went backward three or four. And he's not the difference in the match. I think Liverpool would have lost anyway once Salah went off. But when Carius gives up the first goal of the match... On a play that no one should ever make, it's a low expected value play. Rolling the ball out there as opposed to kicking it to the, uh, you know, halfway up the pitch, that's an easy choice in a Champions League final. Just don't make the one mistake that can kill you, and that's the mistake he made. And seeing that goal trickle in behind Carius after he tried to roll it out, I looked at that and said, "Well, that's that's the end of the match." Like I'd love to think that Liverpool could overcome this, and in fact. You know, they didn't. They did score it. They did level it. But even leveling it 1-1, you had it in the mind that Real Madrid is not the sort of club that are going to let you off when you make that kind of error. As for the, the second mistake Harris made where Bale rips the shot at him and he tries to parry it, he thinks about catching it, and then does neither, and the ball glances in off him. I, I never really thought much about that at all. That was like in the 83rd or 84th minute. Real Madrid were already leading they were not going to let Liverpool score again. So, whatever. I mean, it just, 
it brings more attention to Karius, but that's not the difference maker. The difference maker is him trying to roll it out and having it go back behind him in his own net. So let's kind of, uh, I guess, do a little bit of a recap. Obviously, at this point, we assume that everybody has seen this match. Um, when when we kind of came into the match, I, I said, I guess, on the last podcast before uh, we wrapped, uh, before the, the final itself, I said there were a few expectations that I had going into the match. And I mentioned the fact that I thought Marcelo was going to... I'm trying to find the, the tweet. There it is. Uh, I had predicted that Gareth Bale would enter between the 60th and 65th minute. I said that um, Real Madrid would win 2-1, uh, not 3-1, with Bale coming in as a sub and blowing the top off the game. I also mentioned the fact that I thought that Marcelo would be the one to deliver the service to Bale uh, to subsequently win the game. And I felt really good about it. I still would you know, contend, and I don't think that it's much of a competition at this point, that Marcelo is the best left back in the world, at least the best left back uh, in terms of being able to get up in the offensive third and, you know, absolutely change a game. He struck that ball with the outside of his right foot, his weak foot, just perfectly placed. He he brings such a unique dynamic. And when I said that, you know, the one thing I was worried about when it came to Marcelo was the fact that he might get caught up in that final third and the counterattack for Liverpool could go down and, and you know, burst the, the seams and absolutely, you know, take the top off of the Real Madrid defense. That was all with me kind of expecting that Salah would be in. So again, the Ramos injury to Salah, totally changed everything. It allowed Marcelo to be able to take more risks, to be able to get himself cheating up farther up the field. And ultimately, you know, it, it kind of let him run wild. And when Bale came in, you know, one of the things that I had said was I thought that there was a decent chance that Ronaldo wouldn't go 90 and that Bale coming in, he was going to be the guy who was, you know, obviously going to be able to bring in fresh legs. And once you've had to chase around the likes of Cristiano Ronaldo throughout the match, um, and, you know, either Asensio or... Isco or whoever's going to be in the midfield or Modric, um, you know, Bale was going to be able to come in with fresh legs and absolutely burn Liverpool's uh, outside backs and, and their outside mids. And it's exactly what happened. He had free reign on the match and he was absolutely the X factor, the, the W factor, the Welsh factor. And, you know, he just raised his price tag on a transfer if that's uh, what they ultimately decide to do. So I've, I felt good about my predictions. I don't know why I'm anybody sure would listen did. to any other international soccer podcast. I'm sure you felt great about your predictions until you show me the point where you predicted that Ramos would maim Salah without getting a card. And until you show me the part where you conceded that Liverpool would run the match for the first 20 to 25 minutes until such time as Ramos committed a quasi-criminal act in the middle of the pitch that doesn't even get carded. I don't want to hear the rest of it. I mean, in all seriousness, I... I know that you fired like 20 paintballs against a white wall and eight or 10 of them hit. And now you're, of pointing, them now you're pointing at the spots and saying, hey, look at what a great shot I am. Slow down. All right. Slow down. I Look, and again, the, the victors write history and to the winners go to spoils. I get all that. But come on. This match didn't need to go this way. Shouldn't have gone this way. And but for, first of all, the Salah play and second of all, a keeper who just lost his mind. It's a much different outcome. And we'll get to just how great things are at Real Madrid these days in a few minutes about you know your manager and your star CR7 who was a passenger in this freaking match. We can have that conversation too whenever you're ready. I mean, I, I guess we can transition to that. So in the, uh, the post-match, um, I, I thought one of the... I, I don't know if it was exactly surprising. I guess it probably shouldn't be considered surprising. Cristiano Ronaldo goes out, and once again, I think that was, what, the third match in a row that he didn't score after scoring in every Champions League match this season. He essentially carried them through the, through, uh, the quarterfinals, and, you know, of course you're surrounded by immense international talent, a team that's probably deeper or better than just about any other squad in Europe. And he kind of went non-existent in the semis and even in the final. Like, obviously he brings gravity. You have to mark him up. There's no possibility that you're going to leave him wide open on a uh, on a free runner off of a set piece. But Ronaldo goes out after the match and, you know, really gives the impression that there is a, a decent chance that he might leave Real Madrid after the season. He said, you know, in the next few days, my future will be decided and it's been nice to play for Real Madrid. Now, what I heard that as was he's posturing for another contract. He's posturing for more money. And I don't blame him. Again, he, he carried them through the, you know, majority of Champions League up until that, you know, semifinal when other guys got to step up. And, of course, in this match, he didn't really factor in. 
So I, I understood why he did that. I didn't like it. I thought it was an incredibly selfish thing to do. Of course, this is Cristiano Ronaldo, so you know selfishness is to be expected. Um, he's not the most modest guy in the world, to say the least. Uh, but I thought between that and and Gareth Bale coming out after the match and saying that he needs to play every week, and after having caught you know an injury, uh, what five or six weeks into the season, from that point on, he said he was healthy, and he wasn't sure why he hadn't been playing regularly. You know that was something that. I think a lot of, you know, fans of Real who've watched them all season have kind of sat back and wondered why we weren't seeing Bale more. And I think, you know, in the aftermath of it and looking forward the same way that I have been all this time, I think he's right. And I don't think that he should be playing for anyone else other than Real Madrid. And going forward, you know, as you start to kind of build this team uh, looking towards the future, Bale could very much factor in as a future cornerstone piece of this. It would be stupid to sell him, and I still don't think you're going to get good enough value for him, but... Man, you you wrap up your third straight Champions League title, and you've got one guy kind of hinting that he wants to go back to the EPL, and the other one's Gareth Bale. So here we are. Real Madrid's never going to do this, but if we're being honest with each other, the right move for Real Madrid is to get rid of both Ronaldo and Bale right now. Neither of their values will ever be higher than they are this minute, and here's why. Ronaldo is a failing, falling star, and it's always better to get rid of a player of his age and his talent a year too early than a year too late. As for Bale, for the last three months, we've been talking about Bale as a show pony, uh, you know, a guy who can't stay healthy, a guy who doesn't even start a Champions League final for Real Madrid. And by the way, he was the first substitute to have a brace in a European Cup final. That's an indictment of Gareth Bale. That's not a credit to his name. The fact that they were able to bring him on as, quote unquote, fresh legs, fresh legs, that's what we're going to call Gareth Bale, a guy who... I think at the time set a transfer record or close to when they brought him over and who has serially disappointed for Real Madrid. And now we're going to exalt him as something special because he happens to catch a bicycle kick on the sweet spot and then hits a medium speed shot at a keeper who bumbles it into the back of his own net and that's your brace. Look, slow down. They'll never do it, obviously. I mean, Real Madrid can't afford to send both these guys out right now. But with Zidane leaving, we'll talk about that in a minute, this is a great time for Real Madrid to clean house and to collect an unbelievable amount of transfer money on the backs of these two men and start over. They won't do it, but if I ran that club, I'd think about it. I could see getting rid of of Cristiano. As much as it would pain me, Like I think it does make sense. I think if you hold on to him for another two years, you're obviously not going to get anything back. And you're going to have a, a very upset superstar who is, you know, beyond a falling star at that point. He becomes, what, a dwarf star, right? After the uh, the star burns out, is that a dwarf? Um, I don't know. I was told I, there'd be no astronomy. Yeah, I, I I could see it. I mean, you could definitely see as the season wore on, he started to wear it down. And, and again, like, you're getting into the last two rounds of the Champions League, and he didn't look like the same player. He looked like a guy who had really been carrying the majority of the burden and again like even in La Liga a lot of matches he was getting pulled in the 60th 65th minute because Zidane had the feeling that he needed to continue to rest up Cristiano and you know it's it's something that like I I think you know here's your cross-sport comparison but like in a lot of ways you can kind of see the way that uh, father time kind of wears down on these guys uh, I feel like I've seen more tired LeBron James moments in this postseason with him having to carry a ridiculous burden um you know, as he's gotten older. And I think, you know, you look at these two guys and they've both been at the top of their game for so long that when they don't pull off every Herculean superhuman moment, you kind of, you know, start to wonder if if the luster has begun to wear off. And in the case of Ronaldo, like, yeah, I think you can see it. Uh, he's still just as athletic. He's still getting as high up uh, for headers as he was before, but he just doesn't have it in him to play out on the wing. And again, like we've been talking about this for a while, but you know, Benzema, of course, scores a, a goal on a very stupid blunder by Loris Karius, but, you know, Ronaldo's got to be the guy to take over for Benzema. And Benzema's not going to fetch you much in a transfer. I get that. But I think it's time to, to begin that transitional phase. And if he does, like, I do think that you get a few more years out of him. I think you get a few more years of a 25-ish goal score. Not bad. Uh, certainly not going to do much for his ego. The Bale thing, I think, is more interesting because, you know, like we were kind of talking about before the final, we expected that if Bale came on and, you know, scored one goal, 
Florentino Perez was going to probably, you know, add another zero to the end of whatever the asking price was going to be. And the fact that he went out and, as you said, scored a brace as a substitute for the first time in Champions League history, you know, you call that an indictment on the player. I don't. I, I call that, you know, making the most of, of your opportunity. He doesn't ultimately set the lineup. And we can argue about, you know, did he not do enough this season or in training uh, to, you know, earn that starting spot. But the fact was Zidane went out with the 4-4-2 that had been rumored prior. Uh, and Zidane certainly did not cave to Florentino Perez apparently wanting that 4-3-3 with Bale out on the wing. So, you know, kudos to Zidane on sticking to his game plan, and kudos to Bale for going out and, and executing, you know, at, at the highest possible rate. All that said, I understand what you're what you're saying. Like, they could certainly fetch a pretty decent number. I think the only way that you do it is if you think you're going to get back Mohamed Salah at some point, if you're going to be able to use that money for him, or... You're going to go out and try to, you know, make a, another play for Neymar. I think if if that's what the the goal in all of this is, is to go get a guy who's younger and a guy that you think is going to be more durable, then fine, that, that'll work. But it better be for a bigger name, because otherwise uh, Madrid fans are not going to sit back and, and take this. Well, the irony is that they acquired Bale because they thought he'd be the more, if not durable, then at least reliable type of player that could carry the load and give Ronaldo a breather here or there. And it turned out to be the exact opposite. Bale was the one that needed all the time on the sidelines and they had to grind Ronaldo into a nub. And that's why if I'm Real Madrid, I take this sweet spot in time. These three Champions League titles in a row, people aren't talking about our failures in the league. People are talking about who's who's the new manager going to be. This is the time for the new broom to sweep clean. These guys, look, they're not going to go. Probably either one of them aren't going to go. But if it were me, I'd give serious consideration to selling them both and reloading because you have the luxury to do that right now. So I guess let's let's talk about a few things that are, uh, I guess, further Real um, related. And I guess it also kind of in- involves Liverpool to some extent. One of the hotter rumors that's been going around recently with Zidane's, I would say, sudden departure. I don't know if you were surprised by this at all. Were you? I was surprised by the timing of it because it was just a few short days after raising that trophy again. However, on reflection, again, you know, my first reaction to things is usually not the best because I'm guided by emotion and not by reason. Zidane didn't have the easiest run of things, certainly, this season. And there were a lot of questions being asked of him. And in fact, there was a lot of punditry that suggested that he needed to win the Champions League to save his job. Well, he goes out and wins the Champions League, but he also hears Bale and Ronaldo making all the post-match quotes about themselves, and he knows that there's going to be questions about which one or both are going to stay. And, you know, again, if he gets off to a slow start in the league next season, he'll probably be out on his ass. So if I'm Zidane, like, when's a better time to leave than right now? Kind of the way that Conte wins the FA Cup and then tells Chelsea, hey, man, it's been great. Zidane did that except on steroids. He won another Champions League. He can write his own ticket if he wants to manage again. And he doesn't have to deal with the fallout and the mess, the mess that is Real Madrid right now. And you can say, well, we've won all these trophies. And that's absolutely true. But still have league problems. And you still have personnel problems. And now you don't have a manager. Yeah, to some extent, I guess it makes sense. It's a shame. It's his son who uh, came in, I think it was at the end of the uh, La Liga season. So you thought that he might want to have a chance to manage his son. That certainly isn't going to happen now. And it wasn't like like younger Zidane was going to take over for Navas anytime soon. But um, I don't know. Maybe it's not that surprising. Um, you do make a good point, though. If if everything looks like it's trending downward and you look at two of your biggest name players going out making it about themselves in the aftermath, they're, you know, neither of them are getting younger and we've had durability issues. Like, I, I can see it. The question what was is, Zidane going to do? exactly to make things better for himself at Real Madrid. Yeah, there's there's Win really nothing. 6 in a row in the yeah. Champions League. Yeah, I don't know. And I, I guess the only thing could have been if if he had really thought that there was a chance that they were going to go out and you know make a another franchise changing or franchise uh redirection decision to go out and get you know a Neymar or somebody that he you know thought he would be kind of setting up for the future. I mean, they do have young pieces in place that are exciting. Asensio is certainly exciting. Isco uh when he's in favor with the manager is exciting. Um, who am I missing? Casemiro is an exciting young player. Like these are all guys who are going to be reliable going forward. So it's not like they're just this aging team. Like you've railed on Bayern Munich for being, 
But at the same time, your biggest name guys are the ones, you know, out there making it all about themselves in the aftermath. So, you know, you've got to kind of turn this page on Zidane now, who, you know, by the way, had caught plenty of heat throughout the La Liga season for, you know, essentially giving up on it halfway through. What was it? January is when we said it, it really felt like he kind of set his sights on Champions League and ultimately, you know, achieved that massive uh, um, success in winning three straight. But, you know, if if Perez was upset that, you know, once again, they not only didn't win La Liga, but they finished in third. And if if you really felt like that was a, a black stain or a black mark on the season or on the club's history, then I, I guess, you know, maybe they were considering, you know, parting ways in a different fashion. And this just kind of was a much uh, more pleasant way to go about it. Um, Zidane was quoted after leaving and said, uh, I love this club. What I think this team needs is to or needs to continue winning. Uh, but I think it needs a change, a different voice, another methodology. So let's talk about some of the guys that have been rumored to take the spot. Uh, the aforementioned Antonio Conte is one of them. The most interesting thing surrounding Conte at this point is he reportedly has told the people at Real Madrid that if he were to replace Zidane, he could guarantee Eden Hazard to make a move from Chelsea. Hazard is obviously uh, still in, in a pretty decent age. He's 27 now. He's a guy that we've talked about being an enigma, somebody who, uh, you know, has shown all the promise in the world and flashes, but is is wildly inconsistent at times. You've raised questions in the past about Conte's use of Hazard, and ultimately, the question still has to be brought up: Did Hazard really like playing with Conte or in his system enough to want to make that move to Madrid? Well, I will say that if Hazard goes to La Liga, he won't have to work too hard. Um, he'll put up his numbers in droves and it won't be like the premier league where he's constantly looking over his shoulder to see if he's going to get taken out from behind la liga is a different league we know this um i'm still not convinced that azar will bring it every week in la liga but i think 65 percent of ed nazar in la liga is more than enough to be a goal and an assist and a win uh there was a a very short-lived rumor that had gone around about a possible reunion with carlo ancelotti that i think has uh immediately died out. And so we come back around to Real Madrid's uh, most recent opponent, and that was Liverpool. And reportedly, the Real Madrid players have now soured on the idea of uh, Pochettino coming from Tottenham, and they would rather Real Madrid take a serious look at bringing in Jurgen Klopp. What are your immediate thoughts on that? Do you think there's any possibility it happens? And what would that say about Liverpool if Klopp, you know, were to to choose to leave? I don't think Klopp will leave Liverpool for Real Madrid. And that's not just the knee-jerk reaction. That's the initial reaction plus the rational response plus the little bit I know of Jurgen Klopp having watched him for the last few seasons. He seems like a true believer to me. He seems like somebody who thinks that Liverpool were a bounce here and a yellow card on Sergio Ramos there, and a decent goalkeeper over there from winning the Champions League this season. And Klopp's no dummy. We've just spent 10 minutes talking about what I perceive to be significant unrest at Real Madrid and what you perceive to be fixable unrest at Real Madrid. Liverpool is the opposite of unrest. Things are going really well there. They have talent. They have players. People are signed. There's money to spend. The ownership group believes that the sea is high at Liverpool and they can chase down Man City and they can make another run at the Champions League. Here again, grass is always greener, Russ. Why would Klopp possibly leave Liverpool to go to Real Madrid? And I know Real Madrid just lifted the trophy and I know they just beat Liverpool, but that doesn't tell me that Real Madrid is a better situation per se. I mean, you were mentioning earlier about Zidane and Bale of all this. I wanted to add real quickly, you know, part of the reason I think Zidane left is because he had to deal with the crap that Gareth Bale gave him year on year for the last 24 months and the constant, I might be able to play, but now I'm hurt. My agent says I might want to leave, blah, blah, blah. And Zidane managed to weather that problem, whether that storm with Bale for as long as he needed to, and then he called his number in the Champions League final this season, and sure enough, Bale scored twice. And listen, but for Gareth Bale's two goals, I think the math says Real Madrid doesn't win that final. To me, Zidane's leaving Real Madrid was the hardest thing to do 
Uh, it's been described to me by others. I certainly don't know about this myself personally. But the hardest thing to do when you're at a craps table and you're winning is to walk away, take your money down, and leave with your winnings. That's what Zidane has done here. And so if we're talking about Jurgen Klopp, why would Jurgen Klopp willingly step into Zinedine Zidane's shoes and put up with all this garbage? Klopp has it pretty good where he is. He's staying. I think um, the only, I guess, case I would make for Klopp uh, going to Real Madrid is the Liverpool job is certainly an attractive one. It's a place that I think a lot of players have come out and said that they've enjoyed playing at. And maybe ultimately it does become a place that more players are going to want to consider going to, especially because of the relationship between Klopp and the players. I do think that you only have a certain window to make the move up for one of the ultimate, you know, one of the ultimate premier teams in Europe. And is it a a difficult task to replace somebody who's accomplished an unprecedented thing in club history? Absolutely. Is a guy like Jurgen Klopp going to be able to, you know, potentially take this team, whatever iteration of it is, or comes back next year, and, you know, raise it to a similar level? Potentially, yeah, he's that good. I think that at some point you have to make a decision if you're if you're Klopp or if you're any manager. You might only get one shot to take over a team like Real Madrid. And whether or not it ends in success, uh, you know, certainly, I guess, could potentially, you know, uh, lead you to, to have second thoughts about taking such a job or putting your name in the in the hat for such a job. But, you know, if, if things go sideways at Liverpool, you know, a lot of times they think, we watch a team go out and have a great season and, and we kind of expect them to you know, make the same kind of run in the, in the following season. And there are plenty of signs that Liverpool should be back in the running. But nothing is a guarantee in this world and certainly nothing in the EPL is a guarantee. There's no guarantee that Liverpool continues to make the Champions League year over year. It's a competitive league. And so you have a potential to move on to a massive club that will absolutely make the Champions League each and every year. And, you know, ultimately, you need to put yourself in a position where if winning the Champions League, which Klopp is still yet to do, if that is your goal, the only way for you to get yourself in contention to win a title is to be in the competition. And Real Madrid certainly provides you a much shorter or a much more assured, uh, you know, path to getting back into the Champions League. So I think that kind of thing has to go into your into your calculations. Now, if things continue to go well at Liverpool, he might have himself a, a 10-year career at Liverpool. You don't know. It's kind of hard to know. Um, but maybe you can you can find yourself some kind of security in a 5- to 10-year gig. If you go I, think to Ra- you're falling, I think you're falling into the trap that a lot of us fall into, Russ. What's we that? talk about the National Football League, the American football, uh, NFL, not for long. And you're talking about Jurgen Klopp thinking of, you know, big picture, and this might be my only bite at the Apple at Real Madrid. And... Uh, I could go to Real Madrid, and if I'm successful, I could be there for uh, half a decade, a decade, et cetera, and so forth. I think if world football has taught any of us anything, it's that we make these assumptions or plans or thoughts of what it's going to look like for a period of years, but the changes are so cataclysmic and so quick that it's folly to think that far ahead. I think Jurgen Klopp is a 50-year-old man who is managing a club that just finished in the Champions League final and lost on some fluky stuff, which is a shame that happened, but it is what it is. Again, of the two situations we're talking about right now, between Liverpool and Real Madrid, I would take Liverpool. And Liverpool's not jacking around, okay? Uh, they, They just made another signing. They signed Fabinho for like 50 million pounds. That covers their central defensive midfield problem that they had. Like I said uh, previously on another show we did, they signed Van Dyke when they needed him. They're going to get a really good keeper somewhere. This Liverpool side, and it kills me to say this as a Manchester City fan, but this Liverpool side is set up for about 18 to 24 months of being really, really good. And guess what? If Klopp does a great job with this Liverpool club in the next two seasons, if he wins a Champions League, if he wins a Premier League, when he's 52, when he's 53... If Real Madrid hasn't found the guy, quote-unquote, Klopp will be in the discussion to replace whoever follows Zidane. Again, Zidane was thought to be a stopgap, and he was there for, what, two, three, four years, and now he's gone. That Real Madrid job will cycle back to somebody at some point, and Klopp will be there when it does. All right, that's fair. Um, Let's kind of move on to 
Uh, let really quick. There's no way that Arsene Wenger gets brought in, right? I know that no. it's, it's been it's been brought up, but I, I certainly have to to hope for the sake of anything I own Real Madrid that it doesn't end up getting burned by bringing that man in. But there's no shot, right? No, it's a silly thing that newspapers in England and other parts of Europe will toss out because there's nothing to talk about. All the league seasons are finished. Champions League is finished. The World Cup is still a few weeks away. Um, there are international friendlies to talk about, but in terms of selling newspapers, talking about Wenger to Real Madrid is a lot sexier than talking about um, you know, the United States and Bolivia. So, yeah, no. Wenger's not taking over Real Madrid. I would, if I'm Arsene Wenger... I would not sit out too long, and I would not be too selective with uh, what position I take, because this could be a situation where if he gets too picky and thinks that his resume is so strong that he can wait for the job, he could maybe never manage again. If you're uh, Real Madrid at this point, or let, let's kind of pull you out of out of this being such a uh, an emotional moment for you, but when Bayern Munich named a new manager in, in Kovac, who would come from uh, Eintracht Frankfurt... We said that it was an underwhelming hire, at least in terms of name. Do you think that whoever ends up getting the Real Madrid job is going to be another big name, an Antonio Conte, a Massimiliano Allegri, a maybe a Laurent Blanc? Or are we looking at a situation where they might promote from within or go out and, and get a manager who uh, you know would be considered a, a lesser name? What do you think is more likely? Every time you ask me to guess these things, um, I'm probably less than 50%, so it kills me to do this, but I'll, I'll try since you've asked. Look, Zidane was a reach when they announced him. He didn't really have managerial experience. He was more or less thought of as just a famous player, and everybody thought Real Madrid was a little crazy to name him, and it went really, really well. It's ended sort of badly, but then again, everything that ends ends at some level badly. To answer your question directly, I do not think Real Madrid are going to get cute with this next managerial hiring. It's going to be a big name because of all the personnel questions that we've already talked about. You can't bring in somebody into this situation at Real Madrid right now who doesn't have managerial experience and who doesn't know how to deal with big personalities. You just can't promote from within. It's not going to work. All right. Um, let's kind of get our way out of England. But before we leave uh, we leave that island altogether, um, we talked a little bit about really quickly, uh, we touched on uh, Pochettino signing a five-year deal at Spurs. He had been... In a, in a, a few rumors about potentially going to Real Madrid, I wouldn't be excited about Pochettino. Uh, and I don't know how his contract would work, but if you're Real, do you have any interest? If you're another club, does Pochettino do enough for you to uh, consider making a run at him? I don't think so. I think the timing's a problem. Pochettino signed a five-year deal at Spurs, and then a few, few days later, Zidane announced he was leaving, and then all of a sudden, there were whispers in the wind that they were considering Pochettino, and he may have squelched them, but the truth is, as you just pointed out, some people do, in fact, get their heads turned when Real Madrid comes calling. Uh, no, if I'm Real Madrid, I do not try to poach Pochettino from Spurs, primarily because Pochettino has not been demonstrably, demonstrably better than what they can get elsewhere. Pochettino still has work to do at Spurs. He still needs to win a league. He still needs to make a deep run in Champions League, and he still needs to hang on to people like Harry Kane and Deli Ali. If he flames out in the next two or three seasons in that new building that Spurs has put up, um, it would look really silly uh, for a club of Real Madrid's size to be interested in him then. So no, um, that's too soon a move for Real Madrid to reach for a Pochettino when they can get other people. Um, one other thing, uh, the English Championship, Fulham ended up uh, getting promoted, which kind of ends the John Terry saga and it was something that you and I had talked about before we came on and started recording. And I don't know how many people were kind of aware of Terry's contract with Villa and, and potential issues that it could have brought forth if Villa had you know managed to, to beat Fulham and get promoted. Uh, do you want to explain to the people what exactly we were talking about? Well, a player like John Terry has been in football for so long. He's not going to get multi-year deals from clubs, especially a, a club like Aston Villa that's playing in the championship. So... His contract was going to be renegotiated, dealt with in some way, if Aston Villa got promoted. And, of course, they were in the final against Fulham, and there was a you know 50-50 chance, or thereabouts, that it would have been Aston Villa playing the Premier League next season. Instead, it's Fulham. Had Villa been promoted, Terry had made it known to the powers that be at Villa 
that he did not want to play against Chelsea in league matches. And remarkably enough, Villa said, you know what, John? Sounds good to us. We will arrange it that if you stay with us in the Premier League next season, we will make sure you're not selected for the matches against Chelsea. And again, first reaction to that from my mind was, well, that's silly. Like, the club dictates what the player does. The, di- the player doesn't dictate, you know, what the club does with him. That's stupid. But then I thought about it a little more. John Terry's in his late 30s now. If Villa's in the Premier League, Terry's not playing 35 matches for them. He's not physically capable of it. The schedule comes out early enough that Villa can just strike those matches off the list and say, we're planning on playing 25 matches. These two Chelsea matches won't be two of them. And away you go. Um, Villa was, you know, it's unfortunate for them. They'd much rather have been promoted and had to deal with this nonsense than fail to be promoted and not have to deal with it. But that's where they are. And the question becomes now, does Terry spend another season at Aston Villa trying to help them up to promotion? Or does he think about maybe giving it up? Um, as we continue our our uh, little run around Europe, um, we know that Antonio Conte has already kind of noted that he thinks he's going to leave. That kind of opened the door for possible rumors of uh, Laurent Blanc, the former PSG manager, and Luis Enrique, you know, of course, formerly of Barcelona being interested. Uh, if you had to take a heads up guess, I'm going to once again make you a betting man, flip a coin uh, between Blanc and Enrique chance of either of those guys and if you're Chelsea who do you pr- pursue I, I would think Enrique would be a an interesting hire for them it, it I am kind of questioning whatever happened to Messimiliano Allegri and and his uh, purported interest earlier in this uh, um, little window of, of downtime so um, does Enrique do it for you do you consider Laurent Blanc well first things first I need to close the loop on my John Terry story because there's late breaking developments on this Russ John 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 Terry's going to Derby County Whoa! He's going to play for Frank Lampard at Derby County. Whoa. So says so says the Sun. So says Fox Sports. So says the Derby Telegraph. So Terry's not hanging it up, and he's not staying at Villa. He's going to play for Derby County. And listen, you know it makes sense. Uh, Terry and Lampard had a hell of a run at Chelsea, and so what's the harm? To answer the question you asked me, um, give me Laurent Blanc. Really? Really? Wow. I I think I think he got done badly by PSG. I don't think his management was the problem at PSG. I think it was the personnel, the board, the expectations, the weight of having your entire managerial tenure being judged on Champions League matches, whereas, you know, you can win the league, you can win every French Cup and no one cares. That's the ultimate no-win situation unless you win the Champions League if you're managing PSG. Uh, I think Blanc can show more uh, in a situation where it's not all or nothing in the Champions League. Because as I've said before, we talked a couple weeks ago about the possibility of them creating a Super League and and drawing out the very, very best, the the cream of the crop of all these European leagues. And the point I made at the time was, yeah, but if you join this Super League and you finish ninth in the Super League, you could be a great team and be considered garbage. Well, that's where Blanc is with his tenured PSG. People think he's tainted and he's a bum and he's not a good manager because they didn't go very far in the Champions League. But look at the hell PSG were playing in the Champions League. They're playing the best clubs in the world. A lot of great teams, I would include Manchester City in that group, have serious problems advancing very far in the Champions League because it's a bounce here and a kick there and you know a referee's decision over in this direction over here. It's not a league season. There's a lot of variance in Champions League, despite the fact that Real Madrid have won it three times. So, yeah, now give me Laurent Blanc. Uh, as we continue the European extravaganza, a, f- a player that you and I have both praised and I think you've been a little bit more critical of uh, in recent weeks, Robert Lewandowski, uh, has said that he wants to leave Bayern. Obviously, some of the top teams in Europe are kind of lining up to potentially uh, woo him. That would include Juventus, who I, I guess have kind of uh, tired on Iguain, PSG, who I think are trying to figure out what they're going to end up doing. They're, I think they're kind of planning their exit strategy with Neymar. And uh, I think Edison Cavani is going to still be there, but you know we've talked about in the past that he might be losing a little bit. Um, and Chelsea are apparently interested. I think out of those three teams, Chelsea makes the most sense for Lewandowski. Um, I would still, and maybe this is just continuing to be a Real Madrid homer, but like there is a, a potential move that I could see uh, working out there. Um, 
Lewandowski, you know, while he's not a spring chicken, still has the ability to finish at an elite rate and is certainly a guy that could push a team that's trying to make the Champions League uh, over the top, over that, that hump, and, you know, ultimately maybe get them get them through a round or two of the Champions League on his own. At least with reference to Juventus and Chelsea, he's better than what they have. Yep, Those clubs should be very happy to acquire Lewandowski if they can. And, yeah, I've been hard on him because in the narrative of Bayern being an aging club and not achieving what they have in the past, Lewandowski has been, to my mind, sort of a symbol of their regressing. However, just because he's regressing in Bayern doesn't mean he can't play anymore. And he's certainly better than what Juventus has, and he's certainly better than what Chelsea has. So those clubs should take him. He's not better than what PSG has per se. However, what he would bring to them is the sort of stability and leadership and a winning mentality that PSG has lacked badly. So all three of those clubs would be very fortunate to get him if they can. Um, Let's come back stateside. Uh, So there were a couple of North American friendlies that took place. Uh, U.S. played uh, the Republic of Ireland, right? And after a resounding 3-0 victory over Bolivia in Philadelphia, where we saw guys like Josh Sargent go out and score a goal and, you know, continue to, um, I don't know, continue this youth movement that I think a lot of us had kind of hoped to see from the U.S. men's national team. Uh, they, they won in commanding fashion again. Tim Weah, too, by the way. Yeah, Tim Weah. Uh, he was way out there huh? oh boy. Huh? with that goal. Oh boy. was uh, way uh, off the bench. All right, anyway. There were, I, I thought there were moments in that match that looked like an exciting, hungry U.S. men's national team. And I know that it's probably stupid of me to say, and it's probably recency bias, but that's a kind of team that I would have preferred to see, you know, roll out there with everything on the line in the last few matchups, you know, trying to get this team to qualify for the World Cup. I know that it's it's dumb and that Bruce Arena certainly would have never done it. Um but, you know, watching guys like Beckerman go out and, of course, guys that we've railed against before, like Altidore and Bradley, go out and go through the motions and even Clint Dempsey, I don't know. Like, Sargent and Weah go out and have, have a good match, and you start to see that some of these younger guys have a hunger to them, and they seem proud to wear the kit, and they seem proud to go out and represent the, the country. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't end up working out, but again, they all they needed was a win against Trinidad and Tobago. I have to think that a hungry young American team could have potentially gotten a better result and prevented Christian Pulisic from crying on the field and missing out on his first World Cup cycle. So I, I don't know. That, well, that was kind of where I was at. Wait a minute. Are you familiar with Bolivia's performance in Comabal qualifying for the World Cup? No, Phil. Yeah, they finished second to last ahead of a bereft Venezuela and behind Ecuador and Paraguay and Chile. Um Bolivia played 18 matches, won four, drew two, lost 12. Now, Commonwealth qualifying is brutal, but this 3-0 win that your United States men's national team hung on Bolivia uh, a week and a half ago is not much of an indicator of anything special, especially since, look, Bolivia has as much to play for in that match as the United States does. They probably have less to play for. It's a friendly, it doesn't matter, and... They're playing away from home. So you would expect the United States to win that match. Maybe not 3-0, but you'd expect them to win. Uh, you see what happened when they went to Ireland. We'll talk about that match. Not so great. Not as good. Give people an idea of what happened in that match for those who missed it. I missed it. So I, I'll sit back and, and uh, take what you've got to give. Well, first of all, Bobby Wood scored the only American goal. Bobby freaking They're Wood. still playing Bobby Wood, Bobby Russ. Wood. They don't listen to our show. I, I was chapter and verse on the fact that we know what Bobby Wood is at this point. There's nothing he can do for us to show Bobby us Wood anymore. is who we thought he was. More or less. Um, now, again, I'm dumping on the guy. He scored the only goal. The United States lost 2-1 at the Republic of Ireland. It's not a disgrace to lose to Ireland over there. It's not as tough a place to play as the Azteca. But, look, it's pretty fervent. The, the Irish love their football. The, the issue for me, the problem was... Look who played for the United States. We're talking about Bobby Wood. Matt Miazga was on the defensive line for the United States. Talk about a guy who had his moment and his moment has passed. He's at fault for the second goal. He heads it into the six-yard box, and it's converted, and, and that's your winner. Um, Bill Hamid is in goal for the first goal. Crashed into his own midfielder, leaving his line. We're really still playing Bill Hamid 
along with Miazga and Wood. DeAndre Edlin's out there running around, and people stick up for him and say he's better than I think he is. Well, he'll be 28 in 2022. I'm with you. That group, that young, hungry group that beat Bolivia 3-0, look, the result's not the point. What you need to be doing is blooding these guys to the point when, where when they show up for international matches that matter, they're not awed by the moment. Bingo. There's nothing, there's nothing that Bill Hamid or Wood or Miazga or Yedlin can show me that will convince me that they're going to be keystone pieces of the 2022 World Cup qualifying run. We need to find who those guys are. And if they're kids now and they're going to make mistakes, let them make them now because these mistakes that they make now don't matter a lick. It's funny because like, if you think about it, I think we had talked about it on one of our first episodes, the idea of uh, the U.S. Remember what they were trying to set up some kind of uh, domestic tournament where they were going to try to get like Italy and a bunch of and uh, the Netherlands and other teams that didn't yeah, qualify the, for the, the non-invited World Cup. tournament. Yeah, exactly. The NIT. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Like the the idea of watching uh, the game against Ireland, it just was not an attractive one to me. When I saw what the lineup was, I, I was like, I've, I've seen this movie before. And I know that it doesn't go well. And so I don't care. Um, you know, I, I guess when you're kind of looking at what some of these other teams are doing and, um, you know, like what an Italy did against France, uh, they lost. But their lineup, I think, was a, uh, a maybe a little bit of a, a better peek into, uh, you know, what could be coming down the pipeline. I mean, certainly uh, Italy rolled out some guys uh, who we've all heard of before, like Benucci and Mario Balotelli was back in. But. Um, you know, some of the names that you saw out there weren't guys that you were necessarily used to seeing. And I think like you, you have to kind of start turning that page to the next chapter of, you know, U.S. men's national team soccer, uh, rolling out lineups that you were kind of talking about. I, I still like Yedlin. I still think that there's some promise. And, you know, bringing up the fact that he's going to be 28 in 2022 doesn't really do a whole lot right now, Phil. Like, I mean, if we're being fair, 28 doesn't, you know, make you, it doesn't preclude you from being a good player. That That should be somewhere in your prime or the end of your prime. So um, I don't think his age really has a whole lot to do with anything right now. But, you know, if you want to make the case that Yedlin's stock was much higher a few years ago and you don't think he's going to project out, then that's, I guess, fine to some extent. Um, But ultimately, like, I I haven't really found much of a reason to want to sit back and sit down and, you know, invest time into watching one of these friendlies. And I I don't think that there's much that, that the U.S. could do to make it attractive. I think if they had been able to put that tournament together, I certainly would have loved to have watched Italy. I would have loved to have watched these young guys go up against the Netherlands' finest, or at least their their next chapter. And and Chile. Yeah, and and so like right now, there's not a whole lot that that could entice me on the the flip side of this. And I guess you know somebody that we have talked about in the past, uh, a team that we had talked about, you know Mexico goes and they they play Scotland at home and they squeak out with only a one nil victory and. And now you've got to, you know, if you're a Mexico fan or if you're a Fox Sports executive who's been, you know, pumping the idea of L3 being, you know, America's team now, I think you have to kind of have a little bit of pause here. I mean, I didn't think this Mexico squad was going to be that great anyway, and I didn't expect them to do a whole lot in the World Cup, but 1-0 at home to Scotland? Really? In the Azteca? Really? Yeah, Scotland goes to the Azteca. Really? I mean, last I checked, Scotland's really? fairly fairly close to sea level, isn't it? Like, really? <laughs> the air's certainly cleaner, Like, really? Really is exactly what we're left with. Um, what a weird look. Maybe Alexa Lawless has been reverse psychologying his way into the minds of El Tree. Doubtful. Um, but Fox Sports, man, they have to be upset. I mean, everything that, that they are kind of building their coverage around now. You know, I mentioned before they've been rolling out commercials that are kind of playing to the idea of watch the stars, find a Ronaldo, find a Messi. And root for those guys. They've been going with the international thing. Joel Embiid's been in multiple commercials now, and I think those, well, they also those tell are you to try to and they try and ident- tell you to identify with like your nationality, which I think like is where smart. You're from you and I, I think disagree about that, but I think that's a, a very smart way to go. I I just don't think it holds as much water when Italy, you know, one of the largest ethnic groups in the United States, happens to be of Italian heritage. That team is not in the World Cup. Sure. So enough. I think that makes it a, a little bit more of a difficult you know push or a, a difficult. Um, thing to to go with i do think that's a smart way to to market it not you know telling you that you're a racist if you don't cheer for mexico you know god forbid we point out the fact that mexico is you know our country's arch rival on the field and you know it'd be akin to an eagles fan rooting for the cowboys and saying well at least they're in our division that's stupid here's the other thing russ if mexico were on the order of 
let's say Argentina, not even a Germany or a France, but a contender, somebody that was in that, you know, 12 to 1, 10 to 1, 14 to 1 bet to win the World Cup. You could say or see that Fox wasn't crazy to ask American fans to get behind Mexico. But have you seen Mexico's draw in the World Cup and their group? They get Germany, then they get South Korea, and then they get Sweden, which to me sounds at best loss, draw, win, or loss, win, draw. And at worst, could certainly be two losses in a draw, and they're out. Because those three nations are no joke in the World Cup. And especially since they're playing Germany first, that's terrifying. Like they could lose three, four nil to Germany out of the gate. And now they're really scrambling. That's what I'm saying. Now they're really scrambling. So I I wonder whether the Fox folk are just assuming that the average American soccer fan is not going to bother to look at the draw and not think about what's probably going to happen to Mexico in the group stage and figures that they can ride this pony at least through the first couple weeks and then after Mexico gets knocked out, then they'll emphasize that, well, you know, where are you from ethnically? And you can root for that team or root for a star. You know, again, they can always change the narrative. They can always change the focus. But I think they have backed a three-legged horse in Mexico in this World Cup. What if in a really weird turn of events, South Korea ends up escaping from that group? And the narrative that surrounds it is the disappointment of, of El Tree and the fact that Sweden didn't pick Zlatan and they like end up not scoring enough goals. Like, wouldn't that be, that'd be fascinating. But to me, it, it sounds like a narrative that is entirely plausible. Oh, you terrified me there. Cause I thought you were going to go political on me. I mean, obviously with the United States and Mexico relations are fraught. United States and South Korea is an ongoing story. Uh, I think we should not touch that with a 48 foot pole and we should move on. Okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't going to take a political Phil. If there's one thing I don't take it, it's political. Believe me. Some of the greatest. Um, I just think it would be ignorant of us not to mention that we considered it and decided not to talk about it rather than to just leave it out there and have our listeners think they didn't even see those connections at all. No, we get it. We're just not going to touch it. Crossing Broad FC, come for the soccer content, stay for the discretion of the hosts. Uh, Last thing I think we wanted to get to is questionable calls, questionable officiating. And uh, we're going to keep it local here. And, And a moment that happened in the Philadelphia Union match over the weekend with Atlanta United. One of the most perplexing and I think just inexcusable um, abuses of power and thin-skinnedness by an official. Um, for those who missed it, uh, the union conceded a penalty that Harris Medinian thought was not a penalty. He received a yellow for dissent. And then ultimately, uh, Ali Bedoya... Um, I believe was was shown yellow earlier in the match and then had gotten one for no it was he got a delay of game um, yellow for encroaching on the circle outside of the 18 yard box the ref had turned around given him a yellow and I guess there was another dissent so a second yellow was issued uh, in the post game uh, manager Jim Curtin and multiple players said that other players had heard from the official that he didn't realize that Bedoya was on a yellow card at that point so Bedoya goes off two yellows he gets a red he's out Harris Madunian then charges the official and um, I guess berates and belittles him, gets his second yellow. And in a match where, you know, the union had gone four games uh, unbeaten, they end up going down uh, nine men versus 11 for the remaining 65 odd minutes in the match. They do score once uh, while down two men. But man, if, if you're talking about officiating in, in the game, worldwide, um, even just stateside, this was one of the most troubling displays uh, of officiating and and what I would consider an abuse of power uh, that I've seen in any matchup in the last few years. Well, the remarkable part is that Atlanta hardly needed that advantage against the Union in Atlanta. The Union have had a nice run recently, and they're playing better. Maybe they're trying to save Curtin's job. Maybe they're not. But there's no rational sense of the union going to Atlanta and getting a result that looks like three, one before they even get on the airplane. Now, the fact that two guys get sent off foolishly and the union have to play with nine men for 65 odd minutes. The fact that they only lost three, one is great because it could have been five or six, one. It wasn't. Um, I agree with you that this was an abuse of discretion by this official from what I gathered during the telecast 
Madunyanin and this match official had history. And um, yeah, the, so there was some negativity going into it well, between those gentlemen. The the history, really quick, last year, I think it was against DC United. I might be wrong about the team. Uh, there had been a red card that was being issued against an opposing player, and Madunyanin actually went in to the official and, and uh, got the red or what was about to be a red rescinded uh, against the player. It was very clear that the official had made up his mind. And Madunian said, no, like the contact wasn't made. It, it certainly was not a red. It might have looked like it, but it, it wasn't. And he went and defended his opponent. So that was the history between Madunian and this official. And uh, so well, here again, so it's officials thinking that they are bigger. Like these officials often think that we're there to watch them. And yeah, so Madunian pointed out what he perceived to be an error by this official in a match a year ago. And again, these officials have elephant memories. And I'm not saying he had it out for Madunyanin, but once Madunyanin came at him and again started to question his judgment, guy couldn't get to the pocket fast enough. And now you're dealing with 11 v 9, which, by the way, obviously is an Atlanta supporter and you're sitting in the dome and you have this really, really good team and you're now going to win the match. I guess it's fun, but we talked earlier about Ramos uh, basically maiming Salah in the middle of the pitch and it ruining the match. Well, what could ruin the match more than having it be 11 v 9? The Atlanta United team, who's a lot better than the Union, and now it's going to be a glorified training session for the next 70 minutes. Like, go get a couple of beers, because it's going to be boring, and that's essentially what it was. Well, luckily, Arthur Blank's been keeping the uh, concessions. I think they're at the lowest of any uh, MLS club for for beer and food. So, yeah, for hopefully... The too. So, hopefully, the... Uh, the people were uh, were eating up and drinking up at that game. Because and hopefully you laid the goal with Atlanta United because they were minus one in that match. Now that sports gambling is legal, uh, go on there and, and make your wagers. And if you had Atlanta United and you laid the goal, once the union went down to nine, you slept like a baby. Are we, uh, are we starting to preview some things now that gambling is legal? Perhaps uh, Phil can start to throw down some gambling odds here. Uh, Bob over at the, uh, the website, uh, crossingbroad.com, uh, wrote a beginner's guide to uh, to gambling now that sports gambling is legal. But uh, I don't think Phil has a ton of experience in gambling. He's a very upright uh, and upstanding member of society. Not that gambling is wrong, but Phil might be able to, uh, you know, provide us with some takes. I have nothing to do with gambling. I don't understand it. I tried like a DraftKings thing once and uh, lost my money pretty quick, and uh, I've never gone back. So if somebody can explain lines to me, and uh, what it all means, and then absolutely we'll we'll tackle this, especially with the World Cup coming on. Yeah, I suspect in future episodes of CBFC, especially with the World Cup coming, uh, we will talk about wagers that could make sense if that's how you're so inclined. I would not bet money that I earn. I've got a family, wife and children. Uh, I, there's no money I can afford to lose. But there are members of our audience who have mon- money that they can afford to lose, and, and they want to put a modest wager down on this club or that club or this total or that total to make it more interesting. And I'm happy to dispense whatever wisdom I have. All right. Well, that sounds great, Phil. So I guess we'll, uh, we'll be getting to that as the world cup begins to heat up. We're still a few weeks out from the cup starting. Uh, we'll be back again next week with another new episode of crossing broad FC. And, um, you know, as we get ready for this world cup, we'll be covering all of the international news, any kind of managers or transfer rumors, I believe it was Antoine Griezmann said in the next few days he's going to be making a decision on where he'll be playing next season. And, of course, Mohamed Salah, um, it looks like he will be healthy enough to play for Egypt. He might miss the first match, um, but we'll be kind of covering any kind of late injury news uh, and any kind of things that could uh, you know, potentially affect uh, the the teams as they go forward. I, I don't think we mentioned this, but Peru's captain um, applied for an appeal. So he will be playing in the World Cup, which is... Um, I guess somewhat surprising news. He scored in a friendly too. So uh, nothing better than doing that, I guess, sticking it to FIFA and then going out and scoring a goal. So we'll be covering all those stories and probably doing some kind of previews and and breaking it down and kind of giving people an idea of who we think is going to advance out of the group stage. And of course, uh, you know, we'll be looking to maybe get something together, some sort of a watch party as the World Cup starts up. So uh, as always, thanks for listening to Crossing Broad FC. Don't forget to uh, go check us out on uh, Apple Podcasts, leave a review and a rating, uh, preferably five stars so we can read it on the show. Uh, Google Play, Stitcher. Stitcher has uh, reviews as well if you're so inclined to leave it there. Uh, you can find us on pretty much any other podcast app. 
and uh, let a friend or know a friend or two or six know about Crossing Broad FC. Give us some feedback on Twitter uh, or any other social media channel you can. Uh, check out CrossingBroad.com where this show is always posted along with all the other shows on the Crossing Broad Podcast Network, including Crossing Broadcast, which goes out every uh, Monday, Wednesday, and sometimes Friday, or sometimes Monday, or sometimes Wednesday. We're either two or three times a week with that show, with uh, Kyle and I covering Philadelphia sports. Uh, of course, we've got Crossed Up, the Phillies podcast, on Tuesdays with Bob and Anthony. Snow the Goalie is floating out there. We're working on lining up a, a massive guest uh, for the uh, hockey show with Anthony and I. And then, of course, uh, it's always soccer in Philadelphia. Go check that out. If you're a Philadelphia Union fan or a fan of MLS, uh, Kevin Kincaid had on Sebastian Latou for the 50th episode of It's Always Soccer in Philadelphia. So that was a good listen. Uh, Go check that out. And as always, we thank you for listening. Phil, any last wise words of wisdom? No, I just continue to add that I am rooting heavily against El Tree. and, And if we get to the point where I make picks, I'll be picking against him too. All right, that sounds good. Uh, and I will as well. And guess what, Phil? We can root against Deltree and not be racists. So uh, take that, people. Indeed. In the in the uh, Twitterverse. Uh, until next week, I'm Russ at Joy on Broad. That's Phil at Phil Kydell on Twitter. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks again for listening.